hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 105. Thanks so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, and I'm glad you could find us on the earlier time than normal. Um, today's guest is Maria Matziata-Gillen, one of my favorite people I've ever met in the poetry world, really. She'll be joining us in just a moment, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry too because you're spending your Sunday afternoon with us. So please do click the like button and share. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to whatever platform you're watching this on. Uh, that really helps um, let the computers know that you like this and show it to other people. And that's the way the internet works these days. It's set up so that your actions send things to more people. So make sure you take some kind of action to let them know that you care. Now, as I mentioned, Maria Metzietta-Gillen um, is a, a frequent poet we've published often in uh, Rattle. We interviewed her in Rattle number 46 down in Binghamton, where she uh, teaches and created that uh, creative writing program there. Maria is the recipient of a 2014 George Garrett Award for Outstanding Community Service and Literature from the AWP, the 2011 Barnes & Noble Writers for Writers Award from Poets and Writers, and the 2008 American Book Award for her book, All That Lies Between Us. She's a founder and executive director of the Poetry Center at Passaic County Community College in Patterson, New Jersey, editor of the Patterson Literary Review, and Bartle Professor and Professor Emeritus of English and Creative Writing at Binghamton University SUNY. She's published more than 20 books um, of and about poetry and has edited four anthologies. Her most recent book that we're going to talk about mostly is When the Stars Were Still Visible from Stephen F. Austin University Press, which just came out. And here she is, Maria Gillen. Hey, Maria, it's so great to see you. Hi, sweetie. I think I have to turn something on, don't I? No, you're all set. You're good to go. <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I was muted. Something I think some people would like me to do. Be <laughs> no, I've got a whole soundboard here that I take care of, so you don't have to worry about anything. Good, good. Um, so so how have you been? It's been a few years since I've, I've talked to you. Um, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm always busy. I'm always doing something or other. Uh, last year, though, I mean, this past year with the pandemic was I'm a very outgoing poet person. And this was very difficult for me. <laughs> and then I broke my hip and then I had two surgeries, one which failed. And uh, then I got C. diff. So it has not been an easy year. I can't get back, wait to get back to my usual doing a hundred things a minute. Yeah, that's what I was so, going to ask about, because you just do so many things and have for so long. Um, I was wondering if it was like a nice break or a um, a difficult break, but it sounds like um, the pandemic is, you, you'd want to get back to it all, huh? Yeah, I want to get back to it all. And the only, my one uh, happiness was that in February of 2020, uh, we had a celebration of the 40th anniversary of the establishment of the Poetry Center. And it was wonderful. I mean, it was really wonderful and exciting. And a lot of people came from several different states. And it was just great. And then we were close. Mm -hmm. So we went from a high to a low. But that high carried me for a while. Oh, that's great. Well, so hopefully I, we can get back to it. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's feeling the same thing. Um, you're kind of not centered, actually. Can you shift your uh, your, your uh, iPad a little bit to your... That's better. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Do you want to start? Do you want to read a poem? Sure. I, I'll start with uh, a poem called 
the face be presented to the world. Okay. And that's the cover of my book. And wait a second, I'm going to get to the face presented to the world. I come from a cold water flat heated by a coal stove where my mother cooked and baked and near which we sat to play games like Monopoly or checkers or to do our homework. My mother wanted us to be close and we always were. I am from a metal espresso's pot with a black handle and homemade bread and H.O. cream farina and milk with Bosco in it. I'm from five and dime store cups and dishes, plain and ugly. I'm from the back stoop where we sat with our friends on summer evenings, smoking punks and catching fireflies in mason jars with a hose punched in the lid. I'm from the place where everyone used the back door when they visited, even the milkman and the fuller brush salesman and all the aunts and uncles and cousins and honorary relatives. I'm from a place where Italian dialect was spoken and from political arguments and laughter. I'm from an oilcloth covered table, my mother's homemade macaroni and from everything else made from scratch. I'm from dish towels made from flour sacks, hand-me-down clothes and bella figura. My mother believing that if you were leaving the house, your clothes needed to be clean and neat and starched, hair washed and combed, face shining, the face we presented to the world scrubbed clean of worry, so we would make a good impression and didn't have to be ashamed. And that was, that was uh, a big deal for my mother, uh, La Bella Figura, which meant presenting a good face. Even if you were dying, you're supposed to <laughs> do it smiling and pretending nothing is wrong. Yeah, um, the, uh, the concept of, um, of um, you know, being shy and hiding the sort of things that you really feel, it seems always so central to your poetry. Um, and, and we talked a lot about these kind of topics um, in the interview back in issue 46, so people can, can uh, read that for more information too. Um, but, but do you want to just talk a little bit about that, um, about how, because you've been a poet your whole life. I mean, from the age of like 12 or 8 or something, you've been writing poems. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, and how that played, you know, the, the, the idea of being shy, how that played into your, your sort of drive to write poems. It played into it because I couldn't really express myself speaking to somebody. So I was able to write things in poems that I would never have said to anyone. And and I've gotten braver and braver about that because in the beginning, I was trying to hide behind the kind of poems that I had studied. And since I was an English major and um, taught in English, I was intrigued by the English Romantic poets and by all the poets I studied and loved, which is most of the poets who had ever written. And so I tr tried in the beginning to Im imitate them. And then I thought, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why can't I write the truth in a poem? My mother was horrified. Uh, she wanted me to make up a past that was uh, a past for rich people and not a past that actually existed so she didn't like it that, that I did this, but I felt that it was something I really had to do. And I think I've gotten much braver about what I'm really willing to put in a poem. And I feel that in a way, I wrote a book called Writing Poetry to Save Your Life. And I 
really feel that poetry for me saved my life. It saved the people I loved. It was a way for me to paint pictures of those people with words and to paint pictures of a time when I was growing up, which is very different from the way things are right now. Uh, it saved me because I couldn't speak. I, I was afraid of everything. I was afraid of people. I was afraid of teachers. I was afraid to say anything in a classroom. And so the poems freed me in a way that nothing else could. And then I've been teaching poetry writing for years. And the one thing I keep emphasizing with all my students is if you write the truth, it really lets you lets the past go. It lets everything you're ashamed of, everything you're afraid of, it takes away its power to harm you. So I really do feel that about poetry. Reading it, writing it, all has all been central to my life and to what I've tried to do with my students. I want them to be freed of all the constraints. As an Italian-American growing up, there were a lot of constraints. Be silent, don't make any noise, sit there and don't cause trouble and don't call attention to us and we're gonna get trouble if you call attention to us. So the idea was to be as silent as possible and to sort of sit in the corner and not make any waves. And I think I've dedicated my life after 40 to making as many waves as I possibly <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that idea, though, that, that writing poetry to save your life is such a great book. And, and I really recommend that to anybody who um, is listening and wants to, to have a book like that. Um, but it's so important uh, psychologically. You, you've described poetry as self-psychotherapy before. Um, and, yeah. and I think that, you know, some some poets don't want to don't want to admit that or don't want to talk about the fact that um Writing is really a mode of healing, um, but I'm uh, in the time since um, we've done your interview. I started reading uh, the work of James Pennebaker at the University of Texas Austin. Are you familiar with this work at all? He um, he's a yeah he's a psychologist. Where I'm going to interview him for the next issue next week, which is why he's on my mind. I keep bringing him up in these rattlecasts. Um, but um, he did a whole series of studies on this actual thing where he gave students expressive writing exercises, where the um, the the experimental group would write about their traumatic experiences and their shames and their guilts and things like that. And then the uh, control group would just write about like a favorite hobby or something. So it was something like psychologically not meaningful. And then he followed them through the course of the semester and um, compared the two groups, you know, and, their, and took blood draws. And their actual um, like cortisol levels and their, their blood health was improved by writing about their experiences in an honest way. Um, in a in a really statistically significant way, and um, he's done a whole bunch of research. I mean, he found, he discovered this in the late '80s, I think. He's done a whole bunch of studies since then, like refining that that model. Um, but but basically, the idea is that your your subconscious part of your brain knows all these things and is like worrying and like like wringing its hands constantly, but can't really speak and can't connect with the conscious part of your brain that uses language. And so, writing that out sort of makes yourself cohere in a way. And so it's a kind of um, a bridge between your multiple selves is, is what the expressive writing does. And, and that's what Write and Heal is really, or um, your, your book, how, how, um, how to Write to Save Your Life is really about. So um, like you've gone on that journey and, and sort of discovered that too in a separate way from him, I think. Right. Well, his is a more intellectual approach in mine. I really believe in the old lady who lives in my belly and that that creature 
really knows more. That instinctive part of us knows more than our brains. Um, and I think whenever I've tried to use my brain only in making decisions or in writing, the writing fails. But if I am willing to let myself go and trust my instincts and trust my um, belief system that comes from emotion, then it works for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it must work for other people because I get letters from people now all around the world writing to me about my poetry. So that is very good for a little kid from from the Riverside section in Patterson and from this tenement. And uh, it, it feels wonderful, I must say. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask about too. If you think, um, you know, because writing to save your, um, save your life is an important concept and really works, I think. But, but what about reading? You know, is one of the things that, do you think that's what people get out of reading poetry is the same kind of thing without having to do it themselves, kind of? Because... Um, <laughs> Um, I just I'll tell you a story. One of the things you, my my um my favorite poem of yours that I always just think about is that shame is the dress I wear, which we published in Rattle. I don't know, maybe twenty eight or so. Yeah, and because I, I had a very similar, yeah, I had a very similar experience. Um, you know, it wasn't a dress, but when I was in seventh grade, um, I, you know, one of the first weeks of school, um, I just we were out of laundry. I didn't think about it or something, you know. And, and in seventh grade, everybody cares about fashion, you know, and uh, and I wore sweatpants to school one day. And everybody made fun of me. And, um, and so because I'm the, <laughs> yeah. and so, so, but my response, cause this is my personality type was like, you know, fuck you. I'm going to wear sweatpants tomorrow well, too. That's good. That's good. <laughs> and the next day and the next day. And so I ended up wearing sweatpants every day that year. Um, just because I was embarrassed and felt shame that I wore them that one day or something. And that was my response to it. And um, and then toward the end of the year, there was a, the seventh grade dance or whatever, and people say, "Are you going to even wear sweatpants to the dance?" And, and I wore sweatpants to the dance, and and that was a, you know, in, in my head it was sort of a, um, like a, you know, I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to feel, you know, kind of thing. But the truth is that I was actually ashamed of of um, you know, not fitting in and things like that. And so when I read "Shame Is the Dress I Wear," I really relate to that poem. And, and it was a sort of a freeing thing to read a poem like that from somebody else. So, so do you think that's what poetry is doing for readers? Is is my question. Oh, my poetry. I mean, there are a lot of poems that I love, uh, like I love Dylan Thomas and I love T. S. Eliot. There, there are so many poets whose work I really love, but it's, that's not necessarily the kind of poetry that I write myself. However, when I read poems that really try to get to a deep place inside us, I am moved and it calls up memories of my own and it helps heal some of the shame I think we all live with. And the inability to speak is a big part for me, that being frightened in submission, being afraid to say anything, afraid to stand out um, and just feeling that you were not right, that you were not acceptable and I, I imagine a lot of people start feeling that when they're in seventh grade. But I think I started feeling it earlier than that, uh, that I didn't quite fit in, that I liked books a little bit too much, uh, that in a way I lived in a dream world and that I wasn't quite I was never going to be one of the popular girls. I was never going to be one of the beautiful girls. 
Um, only now do I say, fuck you. Am I allowed to say this on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You would bleep me out. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. I started it, actually, so that's okay. <laughs> um, but, but I think, I mean, you're such a wonderful testament to the way that it works, though, because you are so not shy and so not, um, you know, closed off anymore. I mean, you do so many things with the, the Poetry Center. I mean, you're doing... I mean, not with a pandemic, but you're doing readings constantly. Um, you're, run, you're running the SUNY um, Binghamton program, which is a wonderful creative writing program. Um, and, and you just you like seem like the most outgoing and not shy person um, you, I, I, you could meet. <laughs> well, it, it's all facade, I'm afraid. I, actually, I'm still very shy. And get me in a room at a party and I will hide someplace. I will sit and I won't be able to get my up and go mingle. So I'm still very shy. That that part of my personality hasn't changed. Changed, but I, if I feel strongly about somebody, you're not something. You're not going to get me to shut up. I'm going to speak up. I'm going to say the unpopular thing. I'm going to say the thing that other people are afraid to say. I will say it, mm-hmm. and nothing is going to stop me when I decide I'm going to do something. Nothing is, and when I started the poetry center, people said nobody's coming to Patterson to listen to poetry, and it's going for more than forty years now. And we've had people from all over the country and people from other countries come to the poetry center. So I feel very proud of that as an accomplishment, but it doesn't completely relieve me of my shyness. Uh, it overcomes me. I feel that the little girl is always hiding inside me and waiting to come out. Mm-hmm. And waiting to reveal herself to me. Your response was a much healthier response. I'm going to wear these pants, and if you don't like it, too bad. Uh, you might have felt ashamed of them, but you didn't let it stop you. Whereas I did let it stop me for a long time. And then I think one day I hit a wall, and I said, I'm not ever doing this again. And I have really stuck to that pretty much in an obnoxious way, maybe, but I've stuck to it. And I, I'm not going to be quiet and sit in a corner anymore, except at a party. I will do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, let's hear another poem. What do you want to read next? Um, I think I'm going to read Taking My Brother to the Barber. Um, and I wrote down all these payment numbers, so page numbers, so I wouldn't go crazy trying. When we were children, my mother assigned each of us to a younger child, So I was supposed to look after my younger brother when he needed a haircut. He was seven and I was 10. I walked him up to Lorendo's barber shop on Fifth Avenue and 17th Street. The shop was at the top of a steep hill and we would climb, Alex and I, to the the shop with the swirled barber's pole, red and white and sharply visible in my memory, although it was almost 70 years ago. At my sister's funeral, someone came up to me and said, I can still see you, Alessandro. You'd walk with him and you'd be wagging your finger and telling him what to do. And he would listen with that scented stillness he possessed that he has even now, though he's been a doctor for more than 50 years. The barber, Lorenzo, would place a booster sheet across the arms of a large barber's chair and which picked my brother up and put him on it. He always cut his hair the same way, as if he had placed an imaginary bowl on it. Then he put powder on his face with a big brush to remove any strays hairs that had fallen. We walk out of the shop and we turn home, down the hill, in the back door of the flat. Mm 
My brother is my doctor now. He's 75 and not seven. Some of that little boy I dragged up 17 Street is still there. And his face still has that same calm, soothing demeanor. Now I am the one asking him what I should do, what medicine to take. Though I've seen many other specialists, he's the only doctor I really trust. He never says that I shouldn't lose weight, though I know I should. Instead, and or say that I should do more exercise. Instead, he offers comfort and solace and just the right prescription for me. After some specialist decides I could have some complex and dangerous procedure and then says, I have to tell you, the procedure could leave you paralyzed or give you a stroke. My brother always tells me, no, I wouldn't do that. Too risky and not enough chance that it will succeed. He reassures me, better to be cautious. Surgery is a last resort. And suddenly I see him as a little boy, so serious, so self-contained, even when I'd acted like a big boss who scolded him, and he would turn those huge dark eyes on me and never complain. I'm very lucky to have him as my doctor and my brother, I have to say. Yeah, for sure. And that, that poem was uh, Taking My Brother to the Barber from uh, When the Stars Were Still Visible, Maria Gillen's newest book. Um, the other thing I wanted to do we, we, that we talked about, um, this, this concept of um, the crow in the cave, I think it's so important for anybody who's interested in writing. Um, you already talked about the, the woman sort of in your belly, which is one of the great metaphors you use. But can you explain just what the crow is on your shoulder and, and how you avoid the crow? The of crows in our, in our trees for the last two weeks, and I, I may shoot some crows if they don't shut up. They're having big arguments. But I see a crow as kind of sitting on our shoulders, and the crow tells us everything that makes us afraid, tells us all the ways that we're stupid or not, not the right social class or not articulate enough or makes us afraid to say anything or do anything. And I think in order to write or paint or whatever it is that we do as creators, it it will make us afraid if we don't shove us off, shove us, shut it, shove us off our shoulders. I think that we have to move down in ourselves, take this long journey to the center of ourselves, and I call that place the cave because it's dark and it's scary and it's got every bad memory we ever had, every good memory also, but every bad memory. And it has the crow at the entrance trying to tell us we can't do this. We're not good enough. Who wants to listen to us? Who cares about our stories? Who cares about us? Uh, who wants to hear another poem about a grandmother or a grandfather? You know, all the things that make us afraid that what we're doing is wrong. And I think you have to get rid of the crow in order to do whatever you're going to do. To be a great doctor, a great lawyer, a great teacher, you have to get rid of that crow because the crow, crow takes away your self-confidence, your sense that you could do whatever it is that you decide to do. And I truly believe that if we make up our minds to do something, we can do it. And I, my own life has proved that. Uh, I mean, it took me a long time to get to be a full professor at a big university, but I got there. It took me a long time to create the Poetry Center. And even when I was a professor at Binghamton, I never let the Poetry Center go. So I kept running the Poetry Center while I was a professor at a big university. Um, I think that the crow and the cave are necessary symbols of what we have to overcome if we're going to do anything in our lives. And that means anything. I, I don't care what it is. We're all afraid. 
we're all human. We're all haunted by memories in which we didn't look so good or people were mean to us or uh, we fell off a stage or whatever. And so we have to, in order to do anything, we have to move forward and we have to move past the crow. The crow is going to convince you you can't do anything you know good. Yeah, and there's something about um, creative writing um, and in writing poems that are you're sort of embodying, you're acting out, getting past the crow. Like it, like it's like you're a performance where you, um, you know, like knock the crow off your shoulder and show everybody that you can do it too, and um, and then go into the cave like you talk about. Um, and so it it's a really empowering thing to to uh, read honest poems that that discuss your life honestly. Well, I hope it is. And I, I'm very proud of my students, I have to say. I've had students win big prizes. I've had students publish wonderful books and then win big prizes. I'm very, I'm always so thrilled when my students do well. I know there are teachers who get jealous of students. I, I, they're always like my babies. And when they, when they get past the crow, they start afraid. And my job is to open the door for them and shove them through. And so that's what I do. And I'm very proud of their success, the way they've gone out into the world and embodied this concept of the crow and the cave. And it's given them courage. And every time they send me a book that they publish, every time they tell me about an award they got, I feel that my teaching has been successful and my ideas about poetry have reached people. And I want that. And I can't tell you, my book on poetry is really, it's, I think it's about, I can't remember when I published, because years go by, and I don't remember, I do a thousand things, but I can't tell you how many people have written to me about that poem, book, or I'll meet them at a festival, and they're carrying my book, and they want me to sign it, and they tell me how much it changed their lives. Isn't that what we all wanted to hear, that our poems had a radical effect on people and made them rethink that what they were doing with their lives and gave them courage. That's what I want. And it, it was hard for me because in the beginning, if you look at my early books, I'm hiding. I'm hiding behind language. I'm hiding about behind image. I'm trying to be Keats or Shelley or a T.S. Eliot. I'm trying to be somebody besides myself. And uh, it took me a long time to think, well, maybe somebody would be interested to poems by an adult lower class Italian American grew up in a tenement, who's a mother, a grandmother, a daughter, a granddaughter, a wife, all those things. Maybe they would be interested. And they have been, I have to say. So that makes me extremely happy. When I get letters from people, I'm thrilled. I don't want to say that I'm not thrilled. I am thrilled. And I'm still thrilled <laughs> after all these years. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that, um, I don't know if I ever mentioned it to you, but the reason why I um, came to interview you, I think, was um, just because I noticed how many of your students were, were sending in poems that we just loved. Um, and so it was one of those things where just over and over again, I, I always felt that there's two programs that are just really, really amazing in the kind of poetry that we love at Rattle anyway, which is SUNY Binghamton and the Pacific University um, program, yes. the low residency. And we have a lot of their MFAs come to us. Yeah, there's some kind of synergy to both of them, where where instead of trying to write, I don't know, there, there's just an honesty to the voice and to the the seriousness of like self exploration or the world's exploration or something that comes out of those two programs. I think 
Whereas other programs feel like um, there's a lot more like craft attention, maybe, or, or um, yeah, and, and the poems don't really connect not as well. Be sloppy, but that I care more about what the poem is saying and doing than I do about how polished it is. I, I don't I don't need, uh, but some MFA programs produce what I call sausage poems. So they're grinding them out the way my uncle made sausage. And they were, their sausage is plain boring. And to me, they're boring. If somebody has to get up at a reading and spend 25 minutes explaining their poem, I want to shoot them by the time they get <laughs> I, I get, you know, I've been running readings for about 45 years. And I can't stand when somebody gets up and somebody who thinks they're a genius and has to spend 45 minutes telling you how stupid you are because you're not going to understand the poem. If I can't understand the poem, then there's something wrong with you, not with me. But we were made, when I was in school, many people hated poetry because they were made to feel dumb that they didn't understand it. And I don't want that ever to happen. So I have simplified my language. I have tried to be as direct as possible. And I've tried to teach my students to do that. Now, in, in, I have to correct something. That is, I retired from Binghamton uh, three and a half years ago, uh, not because I wanted to, but because I wasn't physically that strong. And that long ride was too hard for me. When the policeman t- stopped me and told me I was weaving in and out of a lane at 12 o'clock noon, mm-hmm. uh, I decided that perhaps I wasn't safest on the road and that I needed to I needed to retire. Then I was a barter professor for several years. So I was still doing a lot with Binghamton. But uh, Tina Chang came in and as the new director of creative writing. And she may take it in a totally different direction. But I was very proud of what I was able to do during the 20 years that I was there and felt very happy with the students and the work they produced. Yeah, well, there's so many that, you know, if you if you look through the list of the graduates and the list of poets that we publish frequently, there's a, a lot of overlap. Um, I should say, if anybody has any comments for uh, Maria, leave them in the chat windows on either Facebook or YouTube, and I will pass them along. Uh, Richard Westheimer has an interesting comment. Um, he, he says he's reminded about in our earlier discussion about um, Frost's statement that in writing good poetry, um, we get ourselves into legitimate danger so that we can be legitimately rescued. Um, do you, I'm not familiar with that quote. That's a really cool idea. Does, does that resonate with you, that sense of legitimate danger? Um, you know, I'm not sure I feel <laughs> endangered. I did in the beginning because it makes you very vulnerable. Uh, but I think in that sense, yes, you're in legitimate danger. You're vulnerable. People can make fun of you just like the sweatpants. Um, and I think that you have to be willing to take a risk in order to go there. You have to be willing to say, I am going there and I know I have flaws and I know I am not perfect, but I'm going into the world without all the stuff I try to put on myself to keep myself hidden. So, yes, that is a legitimate danger. I love force. I've been one acquainted with the night. I've walked out in rain and back in rain. I outwalked the farthest city light. I mean, look how wonderful that is, how musical and how how revealing it is about his own sense sense of himself. I I love that. I love that in poems. I love music music in poems. I love 
um, Dylan Thomas. I went to Wales uh, uh, several years ago to do a reading tour with Laura Boss. And um, we we did a reading tour and we rode around with Dylan Thomas's daughter. And I can't, I mean, you can't imagine how much I have always loved Dylan Thomas. And to ride around in a car with Dylan Thomas's daughter and to read at his home at Larn and to see his writing shack and go inside and, and sit there and be able to read inside the house at Larn. Uh, of course, I was much better shaped, so I was able to climb 2,000 stairs down to the house. Uh, I'm not sure I could do that now, but I certainly did it then. And it was wonderful to see that. And I think he followed the voice in his own head, which was a very musical voice. And sometimes if you look at it, it doesn't sound realistic. But when you go to his boyhood home and you look out over Swansea, where he grew up, and you look out the window, what you see is exactly, remember Poem to October and Poem to um, my 30th birthday and his poems so clearly describe exactly what you see from that window. So you realize he seems to be writing very surreal poems, but actually the description is perfect. So I nearly cried when I saw what it looks like outside the window. Anyway, I'm babbling and probably getting off the topic. <laughs> No, it's okay, but let's do uh, let's read some more poems to make sure we get through a good number of them. Um, what are you going to read next? Um, I think I'm going to read Ma Flanders, Z. Louisa, and Me. me. Uh, Ma Flanders, of all the characters in those novels I read when I was still young and in grad school, is you I remember, flamboyant, sensuous, in love with life. You always look for the main chance, and I, who could barely remember a name, Five minutes after I hear it, remember yours. I know you were self. I knew you were self-serving, but I love that you never lied about it. You never made excuses. I imagine you trying to make your way, and that's in 17th-century England, where a woman on her own would have been vulnerable, a victim. You remind me of my dear Louisa, that woman who married four times, who wore a tan-colored corset with lace stays, you had to be told pulled tight to hold in her large breasts and belly, who loved to dance the tarantella, her whole body exhilarating and moving and stomping. And then I know Ma only through a book. I know Zilouisa from my childhood, watched her move like an armored vehicle through life, past three dead husbands and on to a fourth, handsome, elegant Zilouisa, who lived in a small apartment above us on 17th Street in Patterson, New Jersey. My mother told me that in the night she'd hear Zilouisa crying, but in the morning Zilouisa would come down the back steps, her cotton dress stiff with starch, her lace hack handkerchief tucked in her sleeve, and she'd be smiling and laughing. She never told my mother what sorrow she carried hidden, hidden in her sleeves. The world does not want to know, and you are mistaken if you think you heard wild sobbing in the night. I loved her. A way approach, in a way, I approached the world in somewhat the same way. Although I didn't have four hundred and only only one for forty-seven years, <laughs> but uh, she approached the world in that way, and I love that she did that, and that she wasn't willing to let anybody pity her in any way. Yeah, and that was on Mal Flanders, Zia, Louisa, and me from uh, Maria's new book. Um, let's hear another one. I want to make sure we get through a good number, so let's do another poem right now. 
Okay, I'm going to be going shop shopping. I used to go shopping with my daughter when she was a teenager. I hate stores, hate shopping. Everything takes time. I get bored. But I went shopping with my daughter because she wanted me to go. I loved watching her try on clothes, loved seeing how beautiful she looked, marveled at the perfect bones of her face. What did I know about shopping? What I did not know about shopping could have filled the Garden State Plaza Mall, but I couldn't deny her anything. We'd get inside a dressing room and all my common sense would fly off the door. And I'd say yes to everything. And so I could make up to this child who still lives inside me for all the clothes I could not afford to buy when I was young as she is now. I wanted to give her the life I never had, an upper middle class life tucked into a silver box with a silver ribbon. Looking back, I, I remember how happy I was to watch her try on the clothes we bought happy that she looked nothing like me. I had yet to learn that her beauty and grace would not protect her but from what waited for her outside the circle that had drawn around her. Unfortunately, there's no way to protect our kids. I used to think that she was protected because she was beautiful, but I've, I've never been beautiful, so I didn't, I didn't worry about it. But I used to think that she, her beauty protected her and opened doors for her. And it did. She admits it did. Uh, but it also hurt her, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it cuts both ways, for sure. Cuts both. But, you know, when you're not that great looking, <laughs> you see somebody beautiful, and you think they haven't made, and all the doors will fly open uh, for, for them and for everything they want to do in their life. Um, let's talk a little bit about that music that you talked about before, because you, you mentioned, um, you know, Frost and Dylan Thomas and, um, and, and one interesting thing when I, um, when I came to visit you at SUNY Binghamton, there was a, uh, you asked me to read a poem, um, cause I came, um, for your, I can't remember what you call it, the writer's desk or something, or the editor's desk. There was some kind of series you had where editors came in. Writing Life, I made up that program. It's probably going to be gone, but now that I'm not in charge of the program, but I made up a program called The Writing Life where I brought people who were editors and people who were publishers to talk to the graduate students and the undergraduates about what it takes to have a writing life and how much we have an obligation to give back to other people for editing or setting up series or whatever it is we do to make ourselves good literary citizens. Yeah, well, well, when I uh, you asked me to read a poem of my own, and you said, um, you can tell, you said, um, listen, kids, you can tell that he reads a lot, <laughs> which is an interesting um, comment, I thought, because um, there is this like music to speech that you acquire from reading a lot. And it's different. I mean, it's different than um, the Dylan Thomas type music. There's a certain music that language has naturally or something. And, yes. um, and, and your poems have that. I mean, you're not writing in um, rhymed couplets or iambic pentameter or anything like that, but you're writing with the music of natural speech. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and why you choose to write like that, even though you love, you know, Dylan Thomas and, and Frost and things like that, too? I, I've read every poet in the world, I think, uh, and I could imitate them, but I decided that I wasn't going to, I was just going to listen to the way people speak, that the people I grew up with never had anybody to re represent them. And a lot of the poets I meet are upper-middle-class people or upper-class people, and they have a certain voice. And I want the voice of my people to be heard. 
And so I hear a music in English. I hear a music in Italian too, I have to say. But I hear a music in English that is incredibly beautiful to me. And I hear music in the voices of uneducated people and educated people. And I try to replicate the voices I hear in my head because I carry people's voices with me. Don't you? That that voice, that sound of English. It, for me, going to school, I didn't speak English. So I fell in love with the way it sounded. I love the way Italian sounded. And when I get home, I hear Italian and be surrounded by the music of Italian, which is a different kind of music. But the music of English for me drew me in and made me want to write, made me want to be a writer. When you read, in a way, language gets absorbed into your body. And when you write, that language comes out and it comes from your body, not from your brain. It comes from your body. And if you're trying too hard to be esoteric, or incomprehensible. That's exactly what you end up being, esoteric and incomprehensible. And I'm not interested in that. I'm really interested in writing poems that people can relate to and people can, I want people to cry or laugh. I want the hair on the backs of their necks to stand up. That That's what I want in poetry. That's what I look for in my students' poems. I, I've often cried and we used to hand, we used to put a box of tissues in my workshop because people would start to cry. And I think you know that you've hit the cave when you're writing and when you yourself start crying as you're writing or as you're trying to read a poem. Um, that's the difficult part. Mm -hmm. Make yourself get, get past the terror of knowing that you're going to that deep place and you're inviting other people in to a place where you're really vulnerable and where shame sometimes totally overcomes you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, it's like we're listening to almost like the music of honesty or something, like with no like affect, with no makeup, with no, you know, there's like a rawness to the way that we create language naturally. And, right. and I'm interested, I'm curious if you feel like this, having edited the Patterson Literary Review for so long, um, if you, I feel like I can hear if if a if a few lines have music within a few lines of a poem, and I'm not even sure what it is. There's just a sense of rhythm, and a sense of like, I don't know. There's like an honesty to the language that you can hear. Do you feel that way when you're, yeah, yeah. you're looking for That's, submissions? When I'm looking for submissions, I, I don't really like poems that are trying to be cute and intellectual and not get anywhere deep inside the person. Uh, I'm not interested in that kind of poem. I, I really want a poem that tells a story. I think of the old troubadours. What, what did they do? They went around telling stories. That's what people, that's what gives people a vision into their own lives, uh, an understanding of their own lives. And that is a kind of music. If you can capture that storytelling feel, that feel of rawness and being ready to tear away all the veils. My fear is that there's a lot of poetry you be taught that is like the scrim on the back of a stage. You know, that black, um, almost, you can see through it, but all you see is shadow. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want my poems to be like that. I did in the beginning. I was really afraid, so I was hiding behind all the things I had read. I think reading is extremely important for anybody who wants to write. And I'm very suspicious of students who say, 
oh, wait a minute. Um, what, what I'm doing is I, I'm, I don't need to read because I have my own ideas. Well, good. But you still need to read because you need to fall in love with language. You need to get language into your body. It has to absorb language through what you feel and that read. And that could be novels. It could be anything. I, I think you have to read every day. And it could be poetry, but it doesn't have to be. It could be novels. It could be short stories. It could be ads. Uh, just how does a language sound to you in your head when you remember it? And I think it's important to try to memorize passages that you love, whether it's memorized passages. I'm not religious, but mem memorize passages from the Bible, from the Old Testament, which is so musical, or memorize passages from a, a novel that you love or from poems that you love. And then you always have language in your pocket mm -hmm. if you've memorized something. And when you start feeling upset about something, you can say that poem or that piece to yourself. And it's very soothing and calming and opens up doors for you as well. Uh, let's hear another poem. I want to make sure we get through a, a good number. Well, what would you like to read next? Um, I think I have no idea how much more time you had. We, we have, have about uh, about 15 minutes maybe. So, Okay, so I'm going to go to um, Chalk, Dust, Chalk Dust and Light, okay. uh, which is on page 92. In the ballroom at the Marriott in Aldermeet, New York, in the middle of this conference, I remember suddenly Miss Ferraro's voice in fifth grade when she read poems and stories to us, her big eyes soft, soft as a doze, her generous mouth, her love of words, and how her love of those words made us love them too. Miss Ferraro, I write to you today from a distance of 64 years to thank you for all those hours of reading aloud in the dusty classrooms of PS18, for treating, treating me as if I were your child, for touching my arm when you passed me in the aisle, filling that class classroom with chalk dust and light, the light that came from you, the husky voice I remember. Thank you for the way you changed my life, opened doors inside me I didn't know were there, for teaching me that books take me away to places I've never been, to places I never see. And because I don't know, I, I don't want to run out of time, I'd like to read a poem about my son. I've written a lot of poems about my son. He's a lawyer and an arch-conservative, and I do love him very much. He's my son, but I often think he doesn't know anything about me, doesn't understand anything about me. And then I fell and broke my nose, and I can't kind of got very depressed, I must say. And I was talking to him on the phone after I'd gotten on to, up to uh, Binghamton. And um, and I drove up there when, uh, I drove up there when uh, I was black and blue and my nose was swollen and, oh God, I was a complete mess. And I talked to him on the phone. I'm always optimis optimistic. No matter how bad things are, I think there's a light at the at the end of the tunnel. And he was horrified that I was depressed. Anyway, my son, the lawyer, quote still in Thomas to give me courage. After I lost my balance and fall, after smashing my gnomes against the hardwood floor, I slip in a huge puddle of blood to try to stand up, but my feet keep sliding. I've always loved mystery stories, read about people stabbed to death 
but never thought about the blood, how the murderer could break his neck sliding in it. After the hospital, after the x-rays, after the EKG, the four-hour drive to Binghamton, after I teach my class, looking battle-scarred, I think my son used to tell me I should cut back and give up poetry, prove that he did not understand anything about me. When I talked to him on the phone, he's shocked, hear the feet in my voice. I am always optimistic about everything, even in the middle of calamity. Today, I am broke, brought low by recognition of my own frailty. My son, the lawyer, the practical, pragmatic one, says, how many women your age have a life they love, work they love doing? Later, he sends me his quote from John Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close, close of day. Rage, rage against the darling of the light. I read the, repeat the lines over and over to myself, grateful to, a son, to the son I was sure didn't understand anything about me. Yeah, that's a great... Uh, I, I love reading that poem in the manuscript because um, yeah, there are other poems... Um, I think we published a poem, right? About how he didn't understand you. Um, about yeah, how, yeah. Yeah, and um, and 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 so it seems like he's he turned you know it's turned around through and I wonder if it's the poetry you know the poems about him that yeah, it's I, made I, that I happen. I had to ask him if you read because my daughter says I'm not reading any of your more of your poems because they make me cry, and then she'll be here visiting me and one of my books will be here and I'll come downstairs and she'll be here and she's crying and she said you did it again you did it again you made me i wasn't going to read the poem i i wasn't going to look at the book and here i am reading the poem and feeling terrible about it so um i guess that's what the way it goes anyway i i thought for a long time that we were so far apart and that he seemed to have so much difficulty talking to me i remember sitting at the side of his bed when he was a kid he would tell me everything and we were close and then I, I guess young men have to go through that distinct distancing period and cut, cutting themselves away, cut themselves away from their mothers. And I found that very hard. Uh, and, but I think we've both grown up to a certain extent. Uh, I find that even at this age, I'm still growing up. And uh, I was glad that he taught, I couldn't believe he understood what I was going through. And it was very, it made me feel wonderful. And now every Sunday he calls me exactly the same time. He's very practical. 5.45 on Sunday night, he calls me, and, uh, which is very nice. I used to chase him. Now at 5.45 on Sunday, I know I'll get a call from my son. And if he can't call then, he would send me an email or a text saying, I can't call today, but I'll call tomorrow. So that's that makes me feel really wonderful. Yeah, that is wonderful. I'm really glad to hear that. Um, so we have a question from Spartacus Anagnostris, um over in uh, the UK, I think he is, or might be back in Greece right now. Do you discover things that you don't know about yourself in a poem? Uh, what is the most important element that gives depth to a poem? Sort of a two-part question, but, uh, but it's interesting because your poems are so memory-based. Do you feel like they're the sense of discovery or sort of re-exploring? Like, like how, how does that feel for you? Yeah, I never know what's going to come out. And I never, I never correct or proofread or make revisions while I'm writing the poem. And I try to get my students, if I see them crossing out, I go, no, no, just keep writing. And I give them 20 minutes. And I give myself 20 minutes. And 
I find things, I find things out about myself and the past that I've forgotten that I didn't remember. It gives me uh, sometimes illumination about my own motivations in a situation or more sympathy for somebody else that I didn't understand the person and didn't know how much they taught me about living and about being alive and how to be a good human being. And I've forgotten the second part of his question. Um, where was it? Uh, what is the most important uh, element that gives depth to a poem? Clarity. Hmm. I think being clear about what you're writing, not, not trying to control what you write, because I think you have to be really ready to let go and let the instinctive part of you take over. I can tell when I've done that because my hand seems to move almost by itself across the page. I write my poems by hand. Then sometimes I can't read my own handwriting, but anyway, <laughs> I write my poems by hand. And very quickly, it, that they go, it's like all these memories come pouring out and things that I didn't grasp when I was younger suddenly become clear to me. So I think the poem becomes a kind of exploration of memory, but also a way of understanding other people and yourself and your motivations for why you did a certain thing, why you said a certain thing. In a way, it's a way of asking forgiveness for people that you've hurt because you didn't understand mm -hmm. and giving, having gratitude for the things that people taught you by the way they live their lives. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, too. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and then we can do one last poem. Um, but I didn't realize somehow, after all these years, that you paint, too, in this cover, which I'll show on the screen when the stars were still visible, um, is your own painting. So I'll put this up. Um, this is, um, yeah. yeah, this is the cover of the newest book. And, um, and then I think, I assume that painting in the background is yours too. Um, how long have you been yeah. painting? And, and... Well, I have paintings all around me. I have to thank Diane Prima, who was a wonderful friend who died last year. I, I loved her so much. Uh, although we led very different lives, uh, we were on the same wavelength and, uh, she was the one who got me to paint again. I painted when I was young, mm -hmm. and then I didn't. And then we were on a reading tour in California, and she said, before we go to Santa Cruz, we're going to go in and buy paints. And I thought she was buying them for herself. Uh, but she said, no, you're buying paints. And I went, I'm going to go with this famous person, and I'm going to paint, and I can't even draw a straight line. And I did the same thing that I do with my students. I started writing, I started painting, and I couldn't get it right, or if there's a right. And then I thought, why are you doing that? When you when you teach writing, you say just let go and let the instinctive part of yourself take over. It doesn't have to be perfect rose. It can be Maria's rose. And I've had such fun painting, I have to say. And I've painted so much in the last few years. <laughs> I'm selling a lot of paintings. I don't want to brag, but it's fun. It's fun to have somebody buy your paint and then send a picture of it hanging in their house. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and what I wanted to ask is is what the process, you know, going, you talk about going to that cave, of course. And, and I wonder how much the process of painting is similar and different to writing a poem, you know, because uh, I don't paint, so I never know. So I'm always curious about that. And for me, it's it's different from writing a poem. It's still, I try to, tap the instinctive part of myself but my paintings are much more joyous they're much more um uh primitive uh they're much more um 
unrooted to reality, really. And what I try to capture is the essence of people, the, the kind of feeling about people that they convey through their eyes or through the way they stand or the way they hold their hands or the way they bend their heads. And so I've had such fun with that because it's a completely different process, and yet it shares some similarities to writing. That you have to let go. If you're going to paint, you have to let go. And if you're going to if you're going to be too picky about every little detail, you're going to get something very stiff and very paint my number. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely not what I'm trying for in painting. And what I'm trying for is something much more surreal in painting. I sometimes have figures floating around and weird little creatures and little cats and I don't know, I put little strange things in there. And have a great time doing it. Yeah, I think you can tell having looked at, at some of them. There, there's a website. Um, so MariaGillen.com is your poetry website, but then Maria Matsiata Gillian Gillen, with your name, with your middle name in the middle, is uh, the painting website. So there's a whole bunch right. of paintings you can see there, and they are very whimsical and fun. Um, well, we're up, up up on time. Do you want to read one last poem? Sure. Um, I think I'll read. Um, Meat, meatloaf and Hamburger Helpers, which is on page 99.3. Growing up, my mother cooked macaroni and gravy, meatballs, and rajala, spinach, lentil soup, roasted chicken, and potatoes. Made zeppeli, big salads from the garden, zucchini with rosemary. Meals so delicious, I can still taste them. When my children were growing up, my mother-in-law taught me to make American food that my husband liked because he grew up on it. So I learned how to make pot roast and legged lamb and stew and roast beef. She taught me how to make meatloaf, which was cheap and could be used for one meal plus sandwiches. She taught me to take me- make meals with hamburger helper, which my mother called that junk. Years later, my stomach turns at the thought of hamburger helper, the greasy feel of it the fake chemical taste of salt and sauce and spices, flavor created in a lab. When I served those meals, so different from anything my mother ever cooked, I felt I had arrived in middle-class America, that I now belonged in a land that almost guaranteed you'd die of a heart attack before you could reach old age. Not the land of my father, too poor to buy all that meat, even if he had wanted to. My father, who died at 92, sitting in the sun in his garden, the room of tomatoes and pepper, peppers and zucchini perfuming the air around him. Thanks so much. And that was uh, um, Meatloaf and Hamburger Helper from uh, Maria's newest book. Uh, Maria, thanks so much for joining us today. It's just a pleasure. I, I'm so glad we could do this and I could see you again. It's been, it's been a long time. And I'm glad to see you, and I want to congratulate you on the wonderful work you're doing in spreading poetry that's comprehensible and making it available to a lot of people in the children's po- that you do, the children's poems that you do, uh, in the in this kind of rattle cast, in putting poems on the web. I just am very amazed every time you start a new project, and I feel you're a younger version of myself, a lot younger version of myself. <laughs> Well, well, that's the highest praise you could possibly give. So thanks so much, Maria. I, I just, I just love talking to you and, and getting to see you again. So thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Tim. And congratulations on everything you've done. You should be very proud. Well, well thank you. Have, have a good day. You too. Bye. 
So that was, uh, yeah, Maria Gillen. And you can find Maria at uh, Maria's website. Maybe I'll put this on the screen. So Maria um, MariaGillen.com right here. Oops, let me... Uh, There we go. There's Maria's website. Um, it's Maria Gillen, M-A-R-I-A-G-I-L-L-A-N.com. And you can find a, a link there, too, to her uh, painting website. There's a painting right there. Um, and all of her books, which of, of which there are many, um, When the Stars Were Still Visible is the most recent from um, Stephen F. Austin University Press. Uh, but there's many anthologies, many other books, um, Writing Poetry to Save Your Life, How to Find, Cha- How to find the Courage to Tell Your Stories, that's um, a, a big book, um, you know, on craft that we talked about. Um, so many books here from uh, Maria Gillen, so check them out. Now we're going to take a brief break, and I get uh, connected with um, the uh, Poetry Spawn poet for today, Rachel Malalu, and um, then we'll have open lines for your own poems. The, the prompt for this week was at the library, so if you have your at the library poems, if you have news poems about current events, if you have anything else you would like to share, um, just uh, go ahead and... Do that now. I'm going to put up the uh, information. Um, so what you do is you email your poem to openmicatrattle.com so I can show it on the screen as you read it. And then call in over Skype or the phone, one or the other. If it's Skype, just send me a chat message to Rattle Poetry, all one word. Say hi, I'd like to read a poem or something. And then I will call you back when it's your turn on video call. If you'd just like to do the phone instead, um, then just call in 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times, then hang up, and I will call you back when the time is right. Don't bother leaving a message because I can't listen to it right now anyway. But I'll see that you called during the show, which will tell me that you wanted to share a poem, and that is how uh, we keep the mailing list for these, or the, or the sign-up sheet. So I'm going to take a quick break, get connected with Rachel, and uh, I will see you in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Uh, we have Rachel Malalu on the line, uh, a poet we've published twice now um, in Poets Respond. And um, here she is. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. So you said you're at a cabin now. Are, are you having some like restful time? I mean, I know you're, you work um, as a doctor during this, this tough time. Is it, is it sort of a vacation type situation? Oh, yeah. Thankfully, we have a cabin in Virginia, and it really has, during this whole time, kind of been our happy place. I have five kids at home um, that I take care of as my other job, so this is where we can kind of come and unwind, and I just got off the lake, so mm-hmm. just up here for the Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, it's so glad uh, that you could share these poems um, from, you know, your perspective as an as emergency room physician, I think, right? So, so you are, like, in the hospital treating patients with COVID for the last you know, 18 months or whatever. I mean, can you just talk a little bit about what that's been like and and through the different waves and things? Sure. I mean, initially, I mean, obviously we've never seen this virus. We've never seen anything like it. So at the beginning, there was almost this, not excitement, but an energy that carried us through. And we were regarded as heroes and people were dropping off so much food that we actually didn't know what to do about it. The patients were really grateful, but it was really eerie at the beginning because everybody was so sick with COVID and the people that didn't have COVID stayed away. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually had a lot of time to take care of the people with COVID. And then we kind of got used to it. Back then there was a lot of fear. You know, we, we covered our hair all the time or everything. We just didn't know how we were going, you know, if we could get it. Mm-hmm. Um, as time went on, we kind of 
learn more about the virus. You got used to it. You kind of lived with it. We had little surges in the summer, huge one at the holidays, which was disheartening because we knew it was coming, but no one listened and it came. And then it almost completely went away. And I'm from Maryland, which is a really well vaccinated state. So at the beginning of the summer, we had almost down to 0% positivity and we felt normal. Mm-hmm. And this last one, the reason I had to write this, it's it's so upsetting because now it's starting again and everybody that comes in is unvaccinated and very sick very quickly. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world is still in the emergency department. Yeah. So it's overwhelmingly busy. And now we're just so tired. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely imagine. I mean, you know, however, how the whole general public feels must be magnified a thousandfold when you're working with it every day. Right. One thing I'm wondering about that I never see much about is, is treatment protocols and things like that. How much better, just since we're talking to a doctor dealing with it, how much better have the treatments become? I know using steroids, like corticosteroids helped a lot, um, mm-hmm. you know, more so than ventilators, but, but other medications and things, how have the you know, development of therapeutics gone? Are there, are you, are, is it easier to treat patients now or is it, it just as hard? Um. I, we have a few more tricks up our sleeves. I mean, at the beginning, I, I know ventilators, everybody got really scared of ventilators. I mean, we, my hospital, I'm with the University of Maryland, we, we, um, we intubated early and often, and people actually did, had good survival rates mm-hmm. at our hospital. Um, but at the beginning, that's about all we could do. And back then, believe it or not, we were giving hydroxychloroquine, we were giving azithromycin, all the things that they thought might help. And then we found out those didn't work. So we took more things off the table than I'd say we got on the table, but the, uh, steroids was a big one. And then now we have the antibodies, um, which I, I don't know. There's been tons of studies about, but when we give it to somebody with mild symptoms, then mm-hmm. a lot of times we can hopefully stop them from going you know, to the full blown need the ventilator. Um, and, and then ultimately dying. Yeah. Um, but it, it, COVID's so weird because I have had literally a hundred year olds survive it, walk out of the hospital. And 47-year-olds die. Mm-hmm. So some, most people get it, and it's a, it's a cold or a flu, and, then, and we just don't know who's going to get it bad. But yeah. now when you see them, you just know. Like mm-hmm. when they come to ER, I just know if they're going to be one of the ones that does poorly or who does well. Oh, wow. And, and how, how, do you, how can you tell? Is there just a sense of it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, where I've gotten to where I can – and then because, you know, I can follow up in the record and see how they did. And um, sadly, I'm almost never wrong. Mm-hmm. So, and it's the way their lungs look on x-ray. It's, it's, I mean, we've all seen the, you know, with the vaccine, without the vaccine, lung x-rays, but it's, it's true. I yeah. mean, it is, their lungs turn into cheese. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you're so, you know, glad we got the vaccine out and so many people can take it. And, and, and it's just so sad that we, you know, so many people don't like, there's a, such a distrust of the institutions in, in this country and around the world too. I mean, there's, there's vaccine hesitancy everywhere in the Western world where, um, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what the source is, but some kind of maybe the media freedom. It's a consequence of that, or maybe just the the way that that you know. I don't know. There's just a distrust of of institutions that 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 leads to this. Really, so many deaths now. I mean, most of the deaths, ninety, you know, ninety eight percent of the deaths or something from now on are going to be only because we don't trust our institutions to to deliver something that that works. It's true. I have actually not admitted to the hospital one vaccinated person yet. Um, in this latest wave, mm-hmm. I have not seen one person come in. I mean, they, there are people getting sick, obviously, but not not requiring hospitalization and not dying. Yeah. And I don't know why it is, but it is. 
I actually get so angry and I don't want to be angry, which is why I wrote this week because mm-hmm. I've got to put it somewhere and otherwise I'm just going to sit and you don't want to be angry at your patients. You don't want to be angry at your friends. Um, and it's hard not to be because I, I know everyone likes to pretend things are fake news and all that, but you know, we have to live it and we have to see it and every death is tragic, but you know, whether it could have been prevented or not. So that's, that is taking a huge toll on healthcare workers right now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good a good transition to uh, go to reading the poem. Do you want to, can you read it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Delta. You remember what it was like in the early days when restaurants sent food and churches dropped off care packages. Everyone said thank you and sometimes clapped. And even when the waves of patients crashed into your emergency room, you were able to breathe. Now you're so weary that when it begins again, you can hardly muster energy to care. As your vaccine antibodies engage in combat with the squadron of medications you consume in order to control your autoimmune disease, and you hope the antibodies win because you're placing breathing tubes into eager airways again, and when your friends don't get vaccinated, you take it personally, and you know this isn't about you, but you're spent, nothing's left, and you don't think you can watch people die alone again while you hold their iPhones as they gasp goodbye. You stop kissing your children for a little while, and you also update your will. But on your days off, you take long hikes and walk the ridge, where butterflies flit among the milkweed blossoms. You kneel beside a monarch and pray that your vaccine holds as you rest in the shadow of its stained glass wings. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Rachel. And, and I want to let you get back to uh, your R&R, which is very important, too. So, um, But I'm really glad you could pop in and join us uh, today in the Rattlecast and, and share this poem with everybody, which is already uh, you know, a lot of shares and, and people spreading it around the Internet, which we always appreciate. So th- thanks so much for, for sharing and writing this and, and doing all the work that you do. Thank you. And thank you so much for, for letting me talk a little bit about it and, <laughs> and putting my feelings somewhere in a good place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad you couldn't. Have, have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. Yeah, that was uh, Rachel Malalu with uh, her poem Delta today, is uh, today's Poets Respond poem. Um, and now let's see what you have. Um, oh, wait, no, let's do, uh, I almost forgot that we're going to have um, prompt poems. So the prompt, as we mentioned, was at the library. And I didn't write one this week. It's my second failure week in a row. Um, I, I uh, just didn't have time. I wrote, or uh, I did the math, and I worked 82 hours this week. <laughs> so every time we go on vacation, you know, there's no one else to not be on vacation. So vacations are kind of brutal for me. And we're putting the fall issue to uh, the printer, which is at the issues at the printer. I'm just doing the mailing list like right now, which, you know, there's there's 9,000 people on the mailing list. I have to make sure the addresses are all good and not duplicated as much as possible and things like that and entering all the contest entries. Anyway, um, so... I am just exhausted and didn't really write anything myself. But Megan did write a poem for the uh, for the prompt. And this was Megan's poem. Um, let me go find it. Um, the prompt, again, was at the library, which is the title of Megan's poem. And uh, here we go with it now. Oops, let me drop this. At the library. The woman in the headscarf and pink fuck cancer t-shirt is slumped over a cluttered desk as sleepy morning light streams in from the high-ceiling windows, her elbow resting on a pile of papers. Several bulging tote bags around her feet like small dogs. She is here to do something she doesn't want to do. Her shoulders have collapsed beneath the weight of this thing that must be done, 
but her mouth is set neat as clean laundry on a line. A man in a lightly soiled sweater a size too small walks over to her, a kind of humble buoyancy in the lightness of his sneakered stride, and he says, Hey, Deb. Her posture stiffens, then rises like a watered flower when she sees the doughy warmth of his face, and she smiles, and he says, Got a joke for you, Deb. What's the difference between a goat baby and a mata baby? She frowns jovially and says, I don't know. And he says, well, do you know what a Mata baby is? And still smiling, she says, no. And he says, ask me. And she says, what's a Mata baby? And before he can answer, she laughs, a sparkling silver laugh, while he grins and nods softly. And she says, thank you. Thank you for making me laugh today. God knows I needed it. And though I can't imagine how anyone could find that joke funny, she sounds so sincere that I'm smiling too, and as the man walks away, she sits up straight as a pin, smooths her wrinkled paperwork, takes a deep breath, and writes her name. Really great poem by Megan. She's such a good writer. At the library. And um, I assume that that is uh, something that really happened. Um, Now, let's see. Oh, I should say, you know, while we're talking about the library, that the next issue of Rattle that we have a call for submissions for is a tribute to librarians. So if you know any librarians who are poets, you know, or past librarians who are poets now, um, or, I don't know, anybody who, you know, works in the library sciences and um, writes poetry, please do spread the word. The deadline is October 15th, and that issue will be the spring 2022 issue. Um, and we'll feature, you know, we'll see how many poets we can find um, in great poems by them who are librarians. Uh, but let's see what you have for us. Uh, first up, we will call, I'm going to call, um, I'll call the, some veteran first, just to let you know and give you time to hear this, that if I call you, there's a delay. Um, so please do turn off your screen, however you're watching this right now, um, and only talk to me through the phone or through Skype. And you have to have your poem with you. Because of this delay, it's like a 30-second delay as the uh, video bounces around the internet. And uh, so you can't read along on the screen. And uh, you also will be talking to uh, the future me and the present me at the same time, which is very confusing. So please do at least mute your, um, your stream that you're watching this or just turn it off altogether to save bandwidth too. That's really good. So um, let's start with, let's do Gordon Capoli. He's got a library poem for us. Hey there, Gordon. I am. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing good. Okay. Yeah. So we're we're, we're sound. Our sound is better now. I think we we good. made a we made people go deaf. I think a little bit. <laughs> Hopefully, no one was listening with headphones on very loudly because that was loud. Well, we'll mute it for the um for the audio version of the show. But how you doing, Gordon? I am very well. How about yourself? I'm doing Maybe. great. Except I keep getting text messages that my uh, people aren't showing up to my softball playoff game later. So I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> How can you play softball along with doing 82 hours a week of rattles? I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, anyway, <laughs> what do you, I just hope we have enough people to play. Like I kind of scheduled the morning rattle cast so I could not, you know, we have a whole playoff tournament and uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if we have a full, <laughs> enough of a team to, to play. But anyway, I, uh, I have to give you a little bit of a background for this because this this poem serendipitously that I'm going to read to you came out of a mistake I made. I, I wanted to participate in the uh, the prompt for this week. So earlier in the week, I looked at it and I actually looked at the wrong one. I looked at the nonce uh, poem, uh, nonce form one. And so I had come up with this this nonce form. Uh, I often do uh, syllable counts uh, for my, my poems. Like every line will have exactly 10 syllables or something like that. 
And but I, I wanted to introduce some randomness. So I, I came up with this this rule, these rules where uh, you find a, a long number somewhere uh, and then the first digit of the number becomes the number of syllables in the first line, second digit, the number of syllables in the second line and so on. If you have a zero, uh, you do 10 syllables in the line. And so I had created a poem, uh, which is actually I, I put as a bonus one on the bottom uh, that I'd like to read uh, after the first one, uh, which was based on uh, the number of people used to call in uh, to rattlecaps. Uh, yeah, okay. uh, but then I was I was looking at uh, uh, I, when Stephen Dunn uh, died a couple months ago, I, um, I bought a couple of his books and I was looking at the back of his book. And I looked and noticed the ISBN number, uh, International Standard uh, Book Number, 13 digits. I said, man, that's perfect, 13 digits. Uh, and so uh, uh, I wrote a poem uh, using that uh, uh, as uh, uh, the, the formula. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll go ahead and, and do that poem. This is called uh, Changing Majors, uh, Stephen Dunn, What Goes On, uh, International Standard Book Number 9780393388553. Medical school was always mom's dream for, for her glum quasi-genius, a bubble burst by chemistry, and those showboaters who studied for hours each quarter. Even cheating couldn't bridge the gap. Music, though? Sure, why not? Practicing? not prioritized, innate gifts, paltry, dim passion, minor ambition, breath, a beat. Oh, very interesting. It was changing majors. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, the, the, the one that I did based on, on the rattle uh, phone number is called Assigned Overseas. It's a tough place to navigate soul, especially as a white guy, averse to the smell of kimchi and anxious in crowds. Not even your first day of high school gym prepared you for the terror of being foreign, giant, black hair on every head but your own. Oh, that's a great poem. I love that. Assigned Overseas. Uh, thanks for sharing both of these, Gordon. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, yeah, and the form's interesting too. And that, you know, we, we talked. I, I never really liked syllabics until I talked to um, A.E. Stallings about it in that in that interview from uh, Rattle '66 or whatever that was, um, and she explained what the, you know, why she thinks it works. And I kind of get it now for the syllabics. It's, there's a tension between you know that that it causes by being forced that way that you can play with, yep. and so it works really well. So it's an interesting form, uh, and that was for the Knots form prompt a couple weeks ago. Thanks, Gord. My pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Have a good yep. day. Yep, you too. Okay, that was Gordon Coppola with uh, Changing Majors and Assigned Overseas, where uh, you generate syllabic counts line by line. Interesting form, Gordon. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so we have T.R. Paulson's uh, poem that she wanted to share. So let's call T.R. back now. Hi. Hey, T.R. Good to have you back. I have the poem now, too. I think, I think I'm more organized now. <laughs> Okay, good. No problem. No problem at all. Um, um, I I always I I'm always excited about the new stuff I send you, but I'm always scared that some journal will blackball be me be me for submitting it to them because oh it appeared it's already been published it appeared on a rattlecast and I don't think 
I mean, well, that's re- unusual, but I don't mm-hmm. want to black ball myself. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I've never heard of that happening. And and I have to tell you, too, um, you know, a few people have asked me for poems in the last, like, year or so, you know, and I tell them I only have poems that I write for the prompt during the Rattlecast, so they're there, and no one's ever cared. So I've, I've poems coming out in three journals, and, and nobody has cared about, <laughs> about it being here. But I understand, and I, I try to warn people that, that it's possible that, that somebody somewhere will care, but uh, I, I don't think I don't think it should be counted as publication because video and text are two different formats, they're two different copyrights, and um, and who cares? <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Yeah. So I don't know. There's that, but I have pl- I have plenty of poems to read. Um, this one was from I submitted to you six years ago, and I was really excited about it because it was I hadn't been published in Rattle at that time, and it was the first personal rejection letter that you ever sent me where you said oh this almost made it yeah we'll see we'll see if i remember it from from all that long ago and um so i ended up workshopping a lot and going and just going through a lot of comments and revising it and hating the revisions and going almost back to the version that's really similar to the one i first submitted to you Mm -hmm. and um so anyway it's now published in athlon and it probably shows up backwards no it does it's Uh, the right way Oh, it doesn't show it the right way? No, it does um, show it the right way. Yeah, it's perfect. It's a great journal for sports poetry. Um, it's, I love it. I've, I've always loved it almost as much as Rattle. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I never knew that there was a journal just for sports poetry. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's not a lot of sports, public poetry, sports poetry published. So it's mm-hmm. nice to have that out there. Though, unfortunately, though, though, they don't have a good online presence. And you can't even really order single issues that I've figured out how you have to actually subscribe. Mm-hmm. So this is a good place to promote them a little bit and to yeah, be, I mean, that's, that's share a poem the same that thing, won't since, be easily accessible. Yeah, since there's no web presence. It's, it's almost like the same kind of thing that sort of, I mean, I hate to say it, but backward thinking where you don't want to put your content on the Internet um, because you want to save it for the journal and then nobody sees it. <laughs> and so it's hard yeah. to it's hard to find, you know, it's hard to hear about the journals if there's no web presence. And then in the same way, you know, sharing poems on a rattlecast and then publishing them somewhere else is just good for everybody, in my opinion. But anyway, um, this is brushes. And so go ahead whenever you're ready. I, I have it here. Brushes. You know the power of those damn airbrushes, which add shades of dark and light to give women thin as straw, boobs and cleavage, and erase dark curves beneath eyes, blue as tinted ponds. You know those cover shots make girls and boys who ride horses and swing that multi-pronged fork to shift through Aspen savings feel ugly. Imagine our surprise to hear American Pharaoh would grace the pages of Vogue. He deserved it after slicing his way to the winner's circle in the rubble, the triple crown, mud on his belly, rain on his crest, sweat on his neck. You can believe the rest of it. A bath and a brush after a breeze, saddle marks smooth, bay coat shining, hooves polished, short tail untangled, conditioned, intangible still there. The spring in his neck, the rippled muscles, evidence the blood of eclipse and war admiral flows in him. It doesn't stop there. A new blanket of roses awaits and then those electronic airbrushes add tones of brown and black glass and shading to make him into a statue of glass, a pretty thing without sweat or slobber or shit, all of it erased as if he never won anything at all. Yeah, that's a really good poem. And I do remember it, I think. Um, you know, it's so interesting to read poems about about horse racing because there's so few. I think you're the only person 
I mean, even uh, Ron Kirchy, who I know loves horse racing and goes to the track all the time, I don't even know if he's written poems about it. And uh, so it's so cool to hear, you know, because poetry just opens up things and different topics and, and sees it through people's eyes. It's really great. And that was a good poem. Um, one thing I, I was going to ask about, um, talk to Marie about, but we sort of didn't have time, is the idea of workshopping. And so when you say that you made a bunch of changes and then brought it back, um, I always feel like that is um, the way workshops usually go. Like you can sort of tell where a poem has been workshopped and it's often too much, I think. So it's cool to hear that too, that it swung around. Yeah, I think it's about just paring it down. Like this this is an improvement over the original version, but it's too tempting to edit out all the things that are actually working. Mm-hmm. Like, And one of the comments in workshop about this one is, well, we don't need to be told that these photoshopped images make girls feel ugly. So I ended up cutting it, but then people didn't know what I was talking about. And, mm-hmm. that, and the next round of comments were, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I don't know what this poem is even about. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big fallacies of workshops mm-hmm. is that you cut too much. People think you're stating the obvious when really you're not. Yeah, yeah, because they're, they're, um, they're preloaded to understand it because they see it and then they think it's easy to understand and then they don't. I think that's one problem. And then there's the too many cooks in the kitchen problem where it's just like, you know, a little bit of every spice and then you just have a mush. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, great to but show. But it was exciting yeah. to find a home, home for it after mm-hmm. after all, the, all of that. Very cool. I'm so glad you did and so glad you could share that too. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yep, yep, have a good day. Have a good one. Bye. It was T.R. Paulson with uh, Brushes. And from that was from Athian. Let me see if I can find, do they have a website I can adri- direct people to? Let's see. Let me highlight. Let's see. So, so if you go to Eastern Tennessee State University, they have a, um, um, well, anyway, so, so there's a website a little bit. You can find the submission guidelines and things here, and there's a, co- a picture of the journal. It sounds like great. I mean, I, you know, I love sports, and uh, I, didn't know, I didn't know there was a sports poetry magazine. That's really cool. Um, edited by Mark Bumgartner um, of the Sports Literature Association. This is all new to me. It's interesting. You, you never know what you find. Ron Smith is the poetry editor. Very interesting. So um, guidelines for submissions, they take them electronic submissions are preferred interesting okay so check that out sometime if you would that is athlon that's a-e-t-h-l-o-n okay and let's see another uh let's do another open mic poet let's try a first-time caller we have a i think we have two first-time callers no three um over the phone the first one was a 914 let's go to 914 first and see who that is and what we might have Hey, this is Tim from Rattle. You are live on the air. Uh, make sure you turn off your stream in the background if you haven't yet. I think I heard myself for a second. Yes, I did turn. I did turn it off. How are you, Tim? It's good Re- to talk to you. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. Who am I talking to? This is uh, Kevin. Kevin Byrne. Uh, we actually had a message exchange uh, regarding the poets respond. Ah, okay, very cool. Well, I'm so glad you could call in and uh, share what you wanted to. What uh, What did you want to share? I actually uh, forwarded along. It's a poem that I submitted for Poets uh, Respond this mm-hmm. week. It's called Sanctuary. Yeah, I remember that. And what was it about? Do you want to introduce it for the audience? Sure. Uh, the poem itself, it was a, a twofold inspiration. Given the last week of, uh, of drama that was unfolding at the Olympic Games, there was a lot of coverage about Simone Biles and uh, Naomi Osaka and all of these athletes that had sort of for the first time in a long time with the games just sort of took time away from themselves to take care of their mental health and mm-hmm. to look after themselves and 
I was very fortunate a few months prior to even writing this poem and seeing what they had gone through. Uh, there was a documentary on HBO called uh, The Weight of Gold, which was about the kind of psychological trauma and depression that Olympic athletes tend to go through when they recover from sort of the aftermath of performing at the competition of the games. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, looking at all of the insane sort of blowback and sort of the obscene comments that were flying around on social media from people that were saying, how dare Naomi Biles, how, how dare Naomi Osaka, how, how, how dare Simone Biles, you know, dare to take time for themselves. And, you know, they should be a, a privileged. It's a privilege to compete rather than, you know, wine in the corner. And I just thought it was it was ridiculous. And I knowing how also the Olympic coverage is fraught with sort of theft imagery and criminal imagery about you know the idea of athletes stealing the podium or gold from each other uh, i felt inspired to write something about the sort of dignity and the and the self-respect that they comported themselves with yeah that's a great great explanation too and so much is going on uh, right now um you know with simone biles and the olympics and things and that the concept of the twisties was so interesting and, and how terrifying that would be if you lost your sense of space while you were doing a double pike with a twist or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, I mean, how dangerous that is. So um, I'm glad she had the courage to, uh, to, to keep herself safe, really. Yeah, the idea, of, and the idea also, it's a great point to bring up the idea of self-navigating and navigation in the air, the idea of coming down wrong and not knowing how you're going to land. And mm-hmm. God, it's, it's so fraught with poetry in and of itself, really, when you think about it. Yeah, it really is. Well, let's hear this poem, Sanctuary. I have it ready whenever you are. Sure. Sanctuary. A thief once said, upon first opening a vault when forging through to break the seal, what one may notice feel the most before forming a bond with what they steal is the pressure drop. Not unlike that midair plummet felt, kept to yourself below the summit, knowing how extremely Greek it was, refusing to reveal relief, peace of mind upon descent, or even show unseemly thin air grief on such a diehard peak. Mountains don't care if they're seen or see themselves as strong as goals defined by hope, imagined as obstacle courses to conquer, know the imposition of coping of judgment shown by an armchair few, who along your climb measured and critiqued every last position and pose they now dare construe as weak. Yet bereft and abused, you accused of theft and hoarding treasure refused to give it back, as if old trophies on a shelf settle scores against the self for seeking shelter, for daring to resist, to untwist, to heal, to stand and speak in a bold voice and command the time. Still, thieves can't keep what you gave back, not enough to wipe your face off the spliced heart of America, where billionaire knave rockets, fast cars, and money in sealed vaults may come first, but won't replace or outlast the surge in your brass veins, ignoring its thirsty urge for that next big heist. Yeah, that's a great poem, Sanctuary. And uh, do you want to explain a little bit about the form? Because you can hear the uh, the meter and, and a lot of internal or a lot of rhymes going on. Uh, what's that form? I, I, I got to be honest, uh, Tim, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> when, when, I, when I wrote it, I, I remember knowing my own studies of poetry from when I was in college, and I, and I was fortunate enough to study under Barbara Moore Clarkson, who was a, a really wonderful poet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and she and I talked once about the, the, the idea of rap music and, and music. And it was when Maria was speaking earlier about the idea of music, 
it, it all came flooding back to me. And some of the lessons that she was imparting today reminded me of stuff that Dr. Clarkson had said to me about when you write, sometimes you get into a rhythm and you find the rhyme coming with it almost unnaturally so from your own head. And I, I felt inspired almost in a certain sense by rap, by rap and rap music. And the, the, the idea of the steps one takes when circling in the air before hitting the vault and then launching themselves. And I imagined as I was writing it, how she had to do that over and over and over again herself. And the idea of landing in a certain way at the same time, knowing what she didn't land right and walking away from it, the blowback of that might be, well, this isn't going to go over well. Mm-hmm. Say I'm ungrateful. People are going to say I'm a coward. So much to bringing yourself up from a small place to a great place. And I, I felt like that was sort of the buildup writing it, the idea of, of, of comporting to the rhythm of beat of, uh, of the steps that one takes when flying towards a goal. Yeah, well, very uh, interesting. But, thanks so much for, for sharing that. It was really great and interesting uh, the way it came to be, too. So, so thanks, Kevin. Thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Yep, have a good one. And that was A Sanctuary by uh, Kevin Byrne, a first-time caller, and a uh, really cool poem. I, I really like that. And let's, uh, let's try another first-time caller. Uh, we shall go to this uh, 563 number, another mystery caller. We'll see who it is. I always love a, a, always love a first-time caller. Oh, I should have put him in the, uh, in the address book. I will do that after. Hey. Here. Yeah, you're live on the air. Who am I How talking to? This is Mike Bales. Oh, hey, Mike. I guess uh, this is a different number you're calling from or something than the old number. Uh, but no problem. So, oh, uh, should, should so, be the same. Uh, whatever. I'm glad you called. I did the library prompt. Uh-huh. Um, I write mostly at home. You know, I do most of my internet at home. I do errands in between work. But it's nice to break it up, to go to the library, check whatever, write whatever. I've got friends at libraries. Mm-hmm. And this is the Bendorf Public Library with these windows high up where I can look outside and this time like see the haze from the fire. Yeah. And this yeah. is called Reading Beyond. Okay, go ahead. I have it whenever you go ahead whenever you're ready. New reads books on shelves near the entrance, a calling. Text and subtext, a friend in circulation, a greeting and passage. Morning turns to afternoon, conversations in the air. Messages must be open. Internets and computers reach other worlds. Novels, nonfiction, poetry collections, authors give from their hearts. A glimpse at magazines and shelves speak to the moment, but themes change month to month. A glance out the window shows a haze. Fires out west, flames devour trees and landscapes. Embers smolder, passions linger. Romance novel and shelves yearn to be read. Roadmaps and telephone directories. Journeys figuratively taken, a full fireplace in the reading lounge to ease the moment, a collection of dreams, my realities. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. Reading Beyond. Uh, and are you, are you back and uh, can you go to libraries and things now? Is it sort of back to normal where you are, given the virus? Um, for a lot of this year, I think. Yeah. Um, the really tough time is when they first closed and I depended on them for internet access and I'd have to like go to a place and pay like $20 an hour to do internet stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. I can write at home, but it's like the internet stuff. Yeah. Um, 
So I just go to libraries to kind of break up the day, you know, like stop somewhere for an iced tea, go to library, see who I know, do whatever, see all the people around. And yeah, yeah, that's the thing about the libraries. It's sort of the last public space for that kind of thing. Like there's so few places you can go to do that, you know? So it's, it's really an invaluable resource beyond just books. I'd say it's about the only, the main thing, creating community. Like uh, when the Bender public library, it creates discussion groups where people meet to read maybe like certain kinds of short stories or different kinds of um, discussion groups, readings for kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a friend in the reference room at the Davenport Public Library. They care. They carry one of my books um, who's like a friend and she wants me to go to something on the 19th about the 175th anniversary of Iowa. Mm-hmm. So I think libraries are the big community creator now yeah yeah they really are well thanks for sharing this poem and capturing some of that uh, mike okay thanks yep have a good one it was mike bales with uh reading beyond let us do another uh, first-time caller and uh we will go to the other phone number we had that i've haven't seen yet this is a 352 number Hey, this is Tim with Rattle. Uh, who am I talking to? Zachary Honeycutt. Ah, thanks so much for calling, Zach. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Uh, what poem did you want to share with us? I think I... Did I see it here? Yeah, I see it here. Library poem. Yeah, I left I left a few uh, poems there. Yeah, I'd like to share at this time. Yeah, sure. So what do you want to do? Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to skip this one. This is just a poem that spells library. Uh-huh. <laughs> And uh, maybe I'll read it another time, but I'm going to go to the last one. So the last one is called The Fruit of What We've Done. Uh-huh. And it's kind of about sin and like generational curses and stuff. But there's a line in here that references books. So I just figured I'd use the prompt as an excuse to read it. Okay, so, that sounds good. Go ahead. The Fruit of What We've Done. The Fruit of What We've Done. As we place our feet inside the footprints of each parent... When we see they fit, we look at them to lay the blame. But don't be so hard on them when the truth has been apparent. Ever since the garden, human beings have been the same. They've passed the same demons, wearing different faces. They've trespassed different boundaries that took them to the same dark places. And when their children follow behind their teachings, falling in their tracks, Will they blame their parents when they scar and break their backs? You would think it would be easier that they would see ahead. But what I've found all around is that the living play dead. Unchanging, unthinking, yielding forever to the sameness of ourselves. Like books where no one looks for knowledge collecting dust upon shelves. You would think it would be easier to walk a different way since the trail we've worn out in the sand is still the same. But ever since the garden, our good intentions sway. As our grandchildren look for an older face to shoulder and to place the blame. Oh, that was a very interesting poem. The fruit of what we've done. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like great rhymes and, and great, I don't know, I'm really feeling that lately. <laughs> the, the unchangeability of people's opinions and things like that. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Zach. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, have a good one. You too. 
Yeah, so that was uh, Zachary Honeycutt with uh, two poems, the, the Memory of a Bookstore Within the Library and, uh, and uh, The Fruit of What We've Done. So let's see. Who do we have? So, um, oh, here's another. We have so many uh, uh, phone numbers. Let's call up another uh, phone number that we... Uh, this is a 703 number. And I'm hoping it's uh, Yaman Hey. We'll see. Hey, uh, this is Tim with Rattle. You're live on the air. I think I hear myself in the background, though, so hit mute, and then I'll bring in your... Yeah. Okay. Coming back. Yeah, thanks. So who am I talking to? Uh, Yue Minghe. Yeah, well, thank, I'm so glad you could do, because uh, you, you sent this poem in, and, and I really enjoyed it um, as a submission. It's a translation um, of, of uh, you know, it's a translation poets respond poem, right. which I believe this is the first time we've ever got one, gotten one, because, it, you I know, know, there's you not enough time. It. That's why I just said you could try it. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. And so I was kind of hoping that you could call in and share this so you could read it in Chinese and in um, in the translation. Sure. Yeah, do you want to, sure. do you want to talk about, um, first of all, uh, what poem this is and, uh, and and why you translated it and what, what it's about? Okay, sure. Uh, are we already on the YouTube? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, this, uh, I have been doing um, translations of a Chinese contemporary poet, Zhang Zihao, mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. And my most recent project is his most recent book, which is called Wan Gu Sao, that means Banco Where. Uh, and then so I've been following his uh, post online, and this is one of the poems he posted recently mm-hmm. and to share with his audience there. He's famous for uh, writing poetry uh, that is that looks very simple, mm-hmm. uh, very amiable, but at the same time very profound and very creative, very innovative. Uh, this poem is short, so we may not see all those, uh, you know, techniques that he play with, but some of them are he doesn't do standard division, mm-hmm. and he writes, the Chinese language has this image like Ezra Pound talk about, so he tried to keep that as much as possible. And he also, somewhat like Emily Dickinson, doesn't use punctuation mark. Mm-hmm. And this poem has the punctuation mark because there's a direct quotation. Uh, otherwise, yeah, there's a two direct quotations. The second is the imitation of the sound. And otherwise, it's always used the uh, daily language that people can relate to, but he can always put a spin on things that look very simple, but to make them very meaningful, uh, relatable. So when I was, he, he posted probably a half a thousand poems, but this one stands out the most because when I look at it, and it reminds me of the news uh, that's uh, about China. Uh, where he, he, This is a poet in Wuhan, so he's based in Wuhan, Wuhan mm-hmm. we, which is where the virus started from. And he, he's a poet who has written 10 collections of poetry and has won almost all the major poetry awards in China. Uh, some of them, such as the uh, Lu Xun uh, Literary Prize for Poetry, that's like the Pulitzer Prize in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it's a poet of high caliber there. So when I saw this poem, and it, it kind of reminded me of the news that I saw uh, on the internet about how people in Wuhan and also in Zhengzhou, 
which just had the uh, unprecedented flood. And so how people are responding to it. But at the same time, I read news about in the United States, particularly in Florida, how people are because of disbelief in institutions and also, uh, you know, the resistance to take the shots. So these two pieces of news pop up in my head. So that's why I sent the poem to the uh, to poets to respond, uh, even though I know that you usually don't do translation. But translation well, is a kind of uh, recreation. So I would think it's like rewriting of the poetry. So I would treat it as writing. That's why I sent it in. No, we definitely, it's not that we don't, you know, intentionally do it. It's just that no one's ever, mm. ever submitted one before because, uh, right. you know, you, you, to, to get that time window of a week, right. you know, so it's current still is, is pretty unusual. Yeah. So I'm really glad you could call in and share this. Um, one thing, I think you mentioned if you could read it off YouTube, I think you have to read your own copy probably. So if you could pull that up and then read it, um, that'd be great. I'd love I, to hear it in both, in both Chinese and English. That'd be great. Okay. So I, I turned off your, oh, you can see, can I, on the screen, can they see the, the poem in both versions? Um, I send the email to you. Yeah, I can show it, but you're not going to be able to see it. So you're going to have to read your own copy is all I'm saying. Yeah, I will read my own copy. Yes. Okay, yeah, okay. so go go ahead whenever yes. you're ready. Okay, so I will first read the Chinese version, okay. then I'll read my translation. Okay. 关于月亮的刘调,作者张志浩。我有一位老友,因为过去关心人类,去年患上了抑郁症。昨晚半夜他发来的短信。记得看一看月亮,它来过我这里。今天清晨我们排队去做核酸,堂堂的人列像一根线索,缠绕着空旷而又深烈的草坪。好久不见这样清白的天空了。啊,啊,声音从前方传来。太阳还没有出来,月
Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, my pleasure. Have a good one. Listen to you. Bye. Bye. Um, yeah, so that was um, um, Zhang Zihao's poem. I, I'm sorry if I'm not saying that exactly right. And then uh, mean Hui with uh, the translation. So thanks so much. That was really wonderful. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, let's see. So so um, we did Mike Bales. Spartacus is here. Um, let's do Spartacus because it's a time that he can... Uh, we'll see. We'll see if Skype works. He says he's in Greece actually right now. So we'll see. Hey, Spartacus, how you doing? It's great to see you. It's I'm doing well. I mean, nothing's in Greece. Yeah, yeah, it's great to see you there. Um, Me too. Well, and, and it's nice to do it at the early time so we could get um, you in, especially, so it's not, you know, so late where you are. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. It's nine o'clock in the evening here. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, so so what did you want to share with us today? Um, I've got a poem about the wildfires in ancient Olympia mm-hmm. and about two teenagers that they planted a tree on a burnt hill. Okay, yeah, well, go ahead uh, whenever you are ready. In ancient Olympia, my words were not destined for books at the Library of Alexandria. My words used to be beautiful flowers and trees watching the Olympic Games in ancient Olympia. The earth was poetry and the rivers its followers. I used to water my verses with a long hose until I could see my angry dreams growing up. I used to swim facing the drops of the rain with closed eyes. Now that I open them, the waves of the sea create wavy capsules made of ashes, and the rivers preserve their water while greeting the sea and gulf in smoke. An abandoned cat chases doves near the sea while trying to escape from a fire that chases it. And the earth orbits a smoke-streaky sun in the sky. Now I am both the fire and the firefighter. I hide my temporary future deep in my heart, and I give it as a gift to the teenagers to plant it in a necropolis of trees. Oh, that was a wonderful poem. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that, Spartacus. Uh, in ancient Olympia, and so many great lines in there. And glad to have you on again and, and sharing a poem. Thanks so much. Yeah, have, have a nice day. Yeah, have a good night. Bye. Bye bye. And that was a Spartacus Anagnosterus with in ancient Olympia. So um, that's one of the nice things about doing the early show. Hey, Richard, how you doing? Good. I don't see you. I just see. Oh, you're our... popping in. Oh, it just go. took a little while for you to set up. Okay. So how are you going uh, this Sunday afternoon? Uh, Good. I am am doing well, ready to get back outside into the garden. It's sort of like there's a lulling period when it's just, I don't feel like it. And Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, (laughs) autumn, you know, all this preparation for autumn. And Mm -hmm. my wife and I commented last night how exciting it was to get back out there and not just have to do it, but want to do it. Yeah, well, that's really cool. I mean, it's such a, you know, that's that's what humans were made to do, at least for the last 10,000 years. So it's great that you get to experience that, that, that we all mostly don't, you know. So yeah. the, the pandemic's been very good for my mm-hmm. garden. Yeah, I, I bet. So what did you want well, to share today? Uh, uh, one one quick comment on your 80-hour weeks. I just assumed with all you got done that all your weeks were 80 hours. <laughs> but... They're usually like 50 or 60, you know, 55 or so. 
I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I work it right at home and I don't sleep much, so it's fine. But sometimes you just have to, there's just a lot of stuff to do and there's deadlines. So, um, right. Right. It out. Yeah. But, uh, uh, um, so I'll, I'll read my, uh, poets respond poem, which, uh, sent it, sent in last week. And I just, I discovered something that I shouldn't post questions on the internet <laughs> about things that might wind up in um, on Facebook that might wind up in poems. And so is this uh, just make sure it's a jam man's last breath that's the one? No, no, that that's okay. that was the year a year ago at this time. This one is the story of trees and roots and soil and limestone laid down in the Ordovician. Okay, yeah, cuz I looked at it and it didn't look familiar. Okay, I'll pull that one up as you so continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. But I yeah, that's make sure that's I had the right okay. poem. Yeah, I posted on on the internet a picture of the uh, trees that are alluded to in this poem. And a particular poetry editor liked the picture. I did. It was fascinating. That is a weird, uh, that is a strange, you know, because the, the, the um, trunks were so close and this big cluster going way up. I've never seen trees like that. No, I haven't either. And I've looked for examples on the Internet and there are none. And, and the picture is deceiving because it's a panorama. So it, you know, makes them do this when they really sort of flare mm-hmm. out. A little yeah, bit. But, yeah. Um, it, they're probably a hundred feet tall. That, that, I mean, yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. So um, I'll go ahead and read. Um, this is a story of trees and roots and soil and limestone laid down in the Ordovician. Um, and just quickly, the the news story was about them discovering that um, in the um, Areas in North Siberia where they've had these heat waves the last two years, they're finding that not just the tundra is emitting methane, which is 80 times more powerful than CO2 as a greenhouse gas for the time that it's there, mm-hmm. but that the limestone, as it thaws, is releasing uh, methane that it's sort of metabolized over the last 600,000 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, so a little, little accelerant there, fuel for the fire. Two men in a dually pickup flag me down, ask if I live around here. Sure do, I replied, and ask back, what's up? Turns out they were in charge of clearing for a sewer line, removing everything in the way of laying in a giant pipe that would carry shit and piss from here to the sea. They are the ones who will take out the old red oak, aged as the nation. They are the ones who will uproot the queenly seven sisters tulip tree. My kids believed sheltered forest gnomes before settlers came. They are the ones who will bulldoze every living thing right down to the bedrock. I wonder if that bedrock, the limestone shouldering this place, is like is like fungi confabulating with its kind all over the earth. Does it commune with its kind in Siberia, which, after an epical thaw, exhales methane like some slow, silent Goliath awakened after 600,000 years of sleep, tossing off its gaseous blanket over a warming world? And will its rocky kin beneath my feet grieve when its skin of soil and root is flayed by great steel blades to make way for the growing of subdivisions. Maybe they each sigh stony laments 
as one of them inhales the stench of diesel and sewage and the other exhales uncertainty. Yeah, another great poem as always, Richard. Uh, thanks for sharing this. this. This is the story of trees and roots and soil and limestone laid down in the Ordovician. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Always a pleasure. Uh, sure. Um, and did you want to hear the la- the one from a year ago, or are we we short on time uh, here? Yeah, we we can. I think I have. Uh, I'm going to read Ted's too, but we have time too. So let's do the other one. I just have okay. To again. I, I the Jam Man's Last Breath. Yeah. Yeah. So this one was accepted for publication in a journal that isn't released yet called Pine Mountain Sand and Gravel, which oh, is cool. the mm-hmm. j- Journal of Southern Appalachian Writers Cooperative. Um, and uh, it's a great journal if folks haven't seen it. Just really amazing. Yeah, I've, I've never seen a copy, but I've heard people say how good it is. So I'm, I'm interested for sure. Yeah. Um, so this is A Jam Man's Last Breath. And it, uh, it just pulled up on my calendar a year ago. Mm-hmm. This was it. And it actually, yeah, here we go. I am told Vernon is on a vent. The wind-up whoosh and monitor beeps sing to him like he used to sing, blue eyes crying in the key of E, just like Willie. He crooned it smooth like an Opry star. Every week we'd circle up. Bill would hammer on his nicked-up Martin's A-string like a heartbeat breathes into my chest. Draws out Vernon's voice, which, like an ember, warmed the room. But that one song was not enough to keep him coming back, so we'd see him less and less. Until I missed the song so much, I learned it badly, I was told. Somehow my beat was too square to capture the sorrow the rightful singer of this song knows, which was made clear when Vernon returned, sung it like I loved it. Who knew he'd be the first among us to wind up alone in a room with a machine-made rhythm that played in the key of whatever the device hummed? When he rasped a last grinding exhale just before they slipped the tube down his throat, no one asked the name of the last song he'd sung. Yeah, that's a great poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that. A Jam Man's Last Breath. Um, and that was back in the time where it was so hard to get poems about coronavirus into rattle <laughs> and to the poets respond because they were, you were that was, at that point we were getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds a week still. Um, yeah. That's a good one. Um, and, and, and sorry about your friend, though. Yeah, well, he did recover. Oh, did he? Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. You know, because mm-hmm. Rachel mentioned earlier that a lot of people recover from the vent, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, really great to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it was was good. I haven't been back to jam, but they're they're yeah. they're back gathered. Are they? And is he? Does he? Do you know if he has any long term? Like, is he still? Is he one hundred percent back to himself? Do you know? Or you know, I, I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. the the number of folks who I used to play bluegrass with who have had COVID is what you would expect. Yeah, uh, folks in the back country out mm-hmm. here in Appalachia, it's just yeah. not a lot of a lot of. Um, um, interest in, you know, do, doing that work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Well, thanks so much for sharing both of those. And I'm, I'm glad uh, too, that turned out. Okay. Thanks Richard. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. 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 That was Richard Westheimer with uh, a jam man's last breath. And then, um, um, the other poem too, as well. Now, Ted Guevara has, uh, a library poem for us, actually two library poems. Let me read these. 
Uh, these are for the prompt. And um, does he say anything else? I have two poems, uh, one new. It's about the struggle of letting go of things you're used to, even in fourth grade. The old poem you've seen already. It's from the book uh, Birds on Elephant. So uh, there's uh, two poems. They're not too long. I'll just read them both. These are both uh, Ted Bernal Guevara, uh, Keepsake Kamikaze um, Tie-Dye Bowl. Here we go. The books whisper to me as if I'm a boy who has yet to learn English and speak it at home. Like all the other kids who went to Perryville Elementary, the gold leaf of the pages, thick as they were, shine on me like they were both the rim of my sun, uh, sunglasses and, well, the sun. They look down upon me and say, Hey, sport, where's your library card? Oh, yeah, you have to speak English to get one of those. ha <laughs> Thick books laugh at the library when you sleep comfortably in another tongue at home. The pillows only offer their slips for me to collect more nouns and verbs of my dialect. One day a fat book even scooted off the shelf and swan dove on my buzz-cut head. I cried like a pregnant cat with no corner to spit out as kittens. I looked up, snatched my first English swear words at the tantalizing, lustrous books. Then I had to pee. I got up from my dizziness, hurried to the little boy's room. The stall door swung open, but I couldn't unsnap my shorts free. For there, in this foreign air still, in the bowl, revealed magic. These books may have been guiding me to a higher echelon, that I should give English, their English, a chance. For in the tubing, that is, um, I bow allegiance and realization that Americans, my goofy classmates included, pee blue. And that is uh, water in the dialect of Ilango, which is uh, too big. And uh, interesting poem. Thanks for sharing this with us, Ted. There's keepsake kamikaze and tidy bowl. Oh, tidy bowl. I guess that is a uh, the blue uh, cube thing that they, or the blue, the blue puck-like thing they put in there is a tidy bowl. A um, really interesting poem, especially with uh, today's poet, Maria Gillen, um, talking about childhood memories very similar to these as a... Um, you know, with the daughter of immigrants trying to deal with uh, with school. And uh, the second poem here, Blue Yonder at the Library Ceiling. This is to Sylvia Plath. She once had a psychiatrist for a soul, an architect for a body, and an engineer for bones. And once her eyes, storekeepers, they were closed. She laid flat on the floor with poked holes on her skin from spines of books. Then the contractor's her legs picked herself up to the level of her heart, the astronaut. Very interesting poem. Blue Yonder at the Library's Calling. Two poems now by Ted Bernal Guevara. Uh, thanks for sharing those. As always, Ted, it's really a pleasure. Some wonderful poems you've got here. And um, let me share Vicky's too. Vicky, uh, Vicky isn't calling in, but but I can do this poem. This is... Um, so, uh, look, I guess it's a very busy week. Vicky says, I didn't have time to write a library poem. I found Roberto Rios, though. He's an award-winning poet novelist, uh, plus his poetry has been set to music in a cantata by James DeMars called Todo Se, and on an EMI release, Away From Home. He was featured in the documentary Birthright, Growing Up Hispanic. And I love this poem, says Vicky. So here is Alberto Rios with a Don't Go Into the Library. He's a poet that I've been meaning to um, do an interview with for Rattle. Because um, he's never sent a poem as a submission, so we don't have him in an issue. But uh, we can always make exceptions for uh, the interview section of each issue. 
So this is uh, right here. This is Don't Go Into the Library. And, and this was found by Vicky at poets.org. Um, so just look up Don't Go Into the Library um, at poets.org. And this is Alberto Rios. The library is dangerous. Don't go in. If you do, you know what will happen. It's like a pet store or a bakery. Every single time you'll come out of there holding something in your arms, those novels with their big eyes, and those no-nonsense, all-muscle greyhounds and Dobermans, all non-fiction and business, cuddly when they're young, but then the first page is turned, the donut scent of it all, knowledge, the aroma of coffee being made, in all those books, something for everyone, the deli offerings of civilization itself. The library is the book of books, its concrete and wood and glass covers keeping within them the very big, very long story of everything. The library is dangerous, full of answers. If you go inside, you may not come out the same person who went in. And uh, there's a photo of Alberto Rios, uh, born 1952, um, his bio here. And you can find all that again at, at poets.org. So thanks so much for sharing that, Vicky. That's a great poem. I really enjoyed that. Um, okay, and uh, I think that's going to be it for today yeah so here's your uh your your saiku for the week and this has to do a little bit with uh, a couple of topics like richard's poem a little bit um this was an article i'm having trouble finding it though here it is this was an article um, um it was pretty properly shared i think there was a reuters article about this um the actual research i'll put on screen here the actual research is from um, the Potsdam Institute for Im Climate Impact Research. And uh, the headline was, Major Atlantic Ocean Current Systems Might Be Approaching Critical Threshold. And uh, so, so, I mean, basically this is talking about the, um, the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridi Meridional Overturning Circulation, which um, is what delivers warm water from the Gulf of Mexico up to Europe up to um about around iceland it kind of travels it's sort of the conveyor belt that keeps the um the northern part of that part of the world warm and these this new study is, is saying that it's very close to collapse and this is one of the things that has interested me for a very very long time they don't really go into much detail in this article about the implications for um for what happens when the amoc um collapses uh but this is the main um source or the main hypothesis for what caused the younger dryas cooling which is that a sudden shutdown of the amoc um what, what really happens is meltwater comes in from the from the glaciers the land glaciers and um, and since um fresh water is so much lighter than salt water um it stays on the surface and uh, normally it's the the sinking action of the salt water the colder salt water that um drives this conveyor belt bringing you know, plunging the cold water down, then the water goes all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, warms up, and then is pushed north toward uh, the Arctic Ocean again. And um, so what happens is all this, when there's sudden warming, um, glaciers melt, and that meltwater goes on the surface of the Arctic Ocean, and um, that stops that conveyor belt from happening. And once it does, it gets colder up in the north. And because all this fresh water is sitting on top of the salt water, it freezes much more quickly. And uh, when, and since ice has a much higher albedo than um, than dark water, it reflects so much more of the sun's heat back into space, and you get really fast cold. And so, um, there are these things called the the older dryas and the younger dryas, which are two 
um, phases in the, since the last uh, glaciation where the temperature suddenly dropped down for a couple centuries, um, and a lot too. And uh, the main thing, I mean, we don't know what triggered the melting really. There's a mystery in that, uh, where the energy for all that melting came from. Um, but um, that triggered sudden cold, which is what killed the mastodons really. And so, so my little psyche here is sort of based on all that, the, uh, the sudden cold that killed the mastodons. And this picture that I always uh, think about, um, just this fascinating, it's an illustration from, um, I think the London Times back in like 1887, but I'll show this on the screen first. Um, this is a warehouse full of mastodon tusks because there's so many mastodons being found in the tundra, um, in, the, in the Siberian tundra. And, um, and they were killed. I mean, there were massive herds out there that were killed during this sudden cold snap. And so, and I always thought that this itself looks like a wave. So here, here's my little psyche. A frozen ocean, mammoth tusks for sale. A frozen ocean, mammoth tusks for sale. That is my little psyche that I whipped up this morning um, when I had 10 minutes free. Um, but really important stuff that's going on in this paper because we don't really know what is going on with the AMOC, but if it shuts down, it's going to get very, very cold in Europe. And people don't think of it, but London is farther north than uh, most places in Canada, you know? And the only reason it's as warm as it is is because of this current. And so when it shuts down, you get a radical, really devastating changes to the weather. So hopefully um, we can stave that off, but there's really not much we can do about it. I'm um, even cutting CO2 emissions isn't going to do a thing. So anyway, that is your uh, psyche for today. And your prompt for next week is right here. Hopefully I'll actually write a poem this week. I mean, everything is kind of, you know, dying down. So maybe I can make it do that. But uh, the prompt for next week is, I love the way Joni Mitchell's song, this is Megan saying it. So Megan is the I. I love the way Joni Mitchell's song Circle Game uses the image of a carousel to illustrate the passing of childhood. Choose a symbol we associate with childhood innocence, a teddy bear, a jump rope, etc., and let your poem unfold from there. So, so um, l- listen maybe first to Joni Mitchell's song Circle Game, which I think I'm familiar with, but I have to listen to it again for the details. Uh, but she uses a carousel to illustrate the passing of childhood. So use a symbol like that and then um, talk about childhood and jump from there. That is your prompt for this week. And um, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Edison Jennings. We've published Edison several times, uh, I think maybe three, four times over the last couple decades. He has a new book, his first book, Intentional Fallacies. He has a chat book that came out a few years ago, too. This is his first full length. Um, Edison is part of our Appalachian Poets issue that we're doing right now. And um, he's a uh, had a career as a, he's a navy veteran and then he became a school bus driver so he has those two career points and the poem about um in the current official rattle is about um kids at school during the pandemic so we'll talk to him about that we'll talk to him about everything uh, going on in this book intentional fallacies that is rattlecast number 106 with your prompt to use a uh, a symbol of childhood innocence in the poem which kind of fits weirdly with the uh, Addison Jennings a little bit too. So that is uh, Rattlecast number 106. It will be at the regular time, Sunday, August 15th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great rest of your weekend and a good week. Uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye.